would you join me, Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5, we've been in this, as I said earlier, I think about, oh, five or no, seven weeks now. This, I think, will be the seventh message out of Matthew 5. We began Matthew 1 back in January, and I realized, boy, the year is flying by, and here we are in uh, chapter 5 still, but that's all right. <clears throat> we've been doing these one at a time, these uh, eight Beatitudes, and that was not by design, it's just the way it ended up happening. Uh, and each week, if you've been here, the Lord has had plenty for us to look at uh, with each one of these. So if you're doing the note handout, I think I counted uh, like 17 notes counting the five major points, and so I'm going to jump right into the first one uh, after we read the text, okay? So I want to encourage you, hold your spot, Matthew 5. We're only going to read the first, uh, verse number 9, our, our main text today, but we'll be referring to verses 3 through 9 throughout. So if you would, look at verse 9, uh, tying right into what we just sang. Come, thou precious prince of peace. Come, thou fount of all blessing. Remember that line when, in a few minutes. Come, thou precious prince of peace. Come thou fount of all blessing. That will come into play in our first point in a moment. Verse number 9. Jesus says, blessed, the idea is fortunate, the approved people. Literally what he's saying is these are the happy people. These are the people who are in the happy place of life, whether they feel it or not. Literally, even more so, what he's saying is, these are the people that have the good life. Who has the good life? We've already seen six descriptions of those with the good life. Verse number nine, blessed are, the good life goes to those who are the peacemakers. Why are they blessed? Why do they have the good life? Why are they in the happy position? For they shall be called sons of God. The idea, only they shall be called sons of God. The previous verse said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The idea, only they shall see God. Today, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. I said it would begin with a note, and here it is. Let's write it, and I want you to track with me, if at all possible. If you've been here first time today, many, many times before, really track. The Beatitudes, that's verses 3 through 9, really we could go 10, 11, and 12, we'll see those next week. The Beatitudes describe the expected progression of a true believer. So Jeff, why are you acting like this is a big deal? So seven messages ago as we were introducing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, three big chapters with a lot in them. Some people wonder, is this even one message? We don't want to get in a big debate about that. You have your opinion, I can have mine. But the question is, some would say this Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus describing life in the millennial kingdom to come. But I propose to you then, as I do this morning, there's way too much evidence. Jesus is not talking about the Christian life that is to come in the thousand-year reign of Christ. That is still to come. And these things will be evident in that day. But he's talking about this life. And so the Beatitudes are the expected progression, I'm going to contend, of all Christians as they go through the Christian life. So I'm going to invite you. If I were to ask, I won't do it right now, but if I were to ask, if you were to say, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know I'm born again. And if you would raise your hand to that, you don't have to raise your hand now, but if you were to raise your hand to that, I want to invite you, test yourself by this list. And so if you look at this and say, well, I've been a Christian for 20, 25, 30, 35 years. If I've been a Christian for 5, 10 years, a brand new Christian may still be working on some of these things. So here's, here's another qualifier. We will never see these beatitudes fully in our life. We will never reach perfection. We will fail in this life. But I'm going to invite you to test yourself by this list. I didn't read all the verses, but here's the list. To be, even become a Christian. Go back in your mind. How long ago was that? For me, I am now 40 years old in Christ. Thursday night of our VBS a couple of weeks ago, I was 40 years old in the Lord as I was born again on the second Wednesday of 
June 1979. I look back on a calendar. I think that should have been June 13th, 1979. I'm now 40 years old in the Lord. When did that happen in your life? Have you been seeing the following progression? To become a Christian, can you honestly say there was a time in my life where I was poor in spirit? The word poor we looked at has a specific meaning. It means abject poverty. It means total bankruptcy. It means this person is so poor, if you give them $5, your $5 gift would be the sum total of their wealth. So how much are you worth now? Now I'm worth $5 since you gave me $5. They have nothing. But Jesus was not talking about finances. He's talking about spiritually. His people all come to a point in life where they confess, Lord, I have no spirituality. I have no righteousness I have nothing to offer you. All I have is sin. If you've never been there, you are not yet a Christian. All Christians. And then we don't just treat that knowledge lightly. We mourn over that, whether physically or at least internally. Deep sorrow. So much so that we cry out to God to give us the righteousness of Christ. If you're a Christian, you've had a time. You may not have known all those details, but you've confessed your sin in some form, some way, and you acknowledged your emptiness to God. The third thing is meekness. Christian, check yourself. When we really realize how depraved and empty of ourselves we are and that God gives us the imputed righteousness of Christ, how can we go out and crush other people? We must Treat them humbly. We submit ourselves. Submission. We line our mission under Christ. We don't dominate and rule over. It's not all about us. We end up yielding. We still have desires. Let's just admit it. We still have our desires, our agenda. But a Christian, the further he goes through the Christian life, yields his or her mission, submission to the mission of Christ. And it results in meekness toward other people. Follow me. Now we go back to this emptiness. We're void of righteousness. But a Christian is not satisfied with that. God, thank you for the imputed righteousness of Christ into my column. But God, I want some real righteousness. I'm tired of being empty. And you cry out to the Lord. And you hunger and thirst to varying levels. I mean, hunger and thirst is, God, I will die if I don't start having some righteousness. And we start going after God. What's the result? The text says you will be satisfied. When we start going after the righteousness of the Lord after salvation, he starts increasing his people in righteousness, which then leads to the fifth one. Be careful. Don't be haughty. Don't judge those that are where you used to be. Remember, it is only by God's grace. And we're so aware of the grace of God that when people sin against us, we're quick to forgive them. Out of mercy. God, your mercy to me inspires me to be merciful to those around me. All of those lead to what I'm going to contend are the crowning beatitudes. And that's pure in heart and peacemaking. Test yourself. The pure in heart goes back to this hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're being merciful to other people. But the pure in heart, pure means unmixed, unadulterated. It means undivided. The pure heart is one that acknowledges, God, I still sin, but I hate it, and I want to be rid of sin. I want just righteousness. We never get there, but we never become at peace with known sin. So we're constantly confessing. We're asking God to give us a new heart. We're spending time in the Word of God so that it cleanses us. We're found often in the house of God. We're found often in the word of God. God, I need you to cleanse my life. And so we make war on sin. The pure heart makes war on sin. But the pure heart doesn't settle there. The pure heart has one desire. Not five. One main overarching. We sang about it in the very first song. It is watch. Christian, test yourself. Could you honestly say, God, I want to love you. I want to please you. I want to magnify you above everything else in my life. That's the progression of a Christian. And when a Christian reaches a pure heart that has this one single overarching desire above everything else, yes, we have other desires because we're human, but when we have that in our life, that leads, God, I really want to magnify you, then one of the ways we do it is by entering people's lives as peacemakers. And so I want to ask you a quick question. You guys help me out. Give me like verbal answers. 
what percentage of Christians should be poor in spirit? 100%. Very good. Good answer. What percentage of Christians should mourn over their sin? 100%. What what percentage of Christians should grow and develop a meekness toward other people? 100%. You guys kind of see where I'm going. How many Christians should be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? 100%. How many should be merciful? 100%. How many should have a pure, undivided, single-focused heart that makes war on sin? 100%. So you guys help me out. How many Christians should be peacemakers? 5%. I'm telling you, that's how we live. As we go through today, I want to challenge you. The order matters. I believe it all culminates in God leaves his people here for these other six beatitudes, yes, to grow. But if we don't actually culminate in being peacemakers, then what was the point? Just going to heaven. All the others, you will do better in heaven. Peacemaking is the one main thing you do while you're here. And it's the one. This is the hardest one. Oh, how we need peace. I need it. There's pain, fear, lots of fear. It's in this room today. A lot of pain represented in this room. A lot of pain in the hospital I was at yesterday. A lot of fighting. Nations are fighting. Cities are fighting. Communities are fighting. Neighborhoods and homeowner associations are fighting. Churches are fighting. Families are fighting. We need some serious peace. You know how the, I'll give you a couple pieces of evidence. I told Brother Paul, if we were to just get out a couple pieces of paper and take 20 minutes and we write down two lists and exhaust the the two lists in our minds, give you 20 minutes to think about it, on one side you're going to write all the famous war generals that you can think of. Go back to the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and and, and then Napoleon and all the French and come to our time, the, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and just list Persian Gulf War. List all the generals. You're going to come up with 2025. You don't even think you would, but if you really test yourself. And then on the other side, you're going to name all the people that have won a peace prize. We're going to have very few names, and we'll probably disagree with the names that we do know that are on the peace prize. That's man's decision to give a peace prize. But boy, we really celebrate people that crush other people and conquer and kill. Here's another little sign I'm not a video gamer. So I'm not preaching against that. I'm just giving you an evidence of our need of peace. Among older teenagers and adults, which kind of video games are the most popular by far? Video games where we practice killing other people. Blessed are the... See, people don't sit around and daydream. What are you daydreaming about? Well, I just want to be a reconciler. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a reconciler, Dad. No. We want to conquer and kill and destroy and be the hero. And Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the sons of God. So this morning I have five thoughts. If we get through the five thoughts, I will confess, if you haven't picked up already, the voice is a little weak. Today I came home from vacation with a head cold and... I've told several people, if the Lord wills, uh, that today's message goes shorter, then we'll just see how far it goes when the voice gives way. Uh, if it's his will, then we'll make it all the way through five thoughts. Number one, with me, here we go if you're keeping notes. The meaning of peace. I've got to touch this. This has to be number one, the meaning of peace. If you're like most people, and I realize I'm looking at an audience where some of you have actually taught on peace and peacemaking, and so you know where I'm headed But many of us have not thought of this. And so literally when we think of peace, here's what we think of. Peace is an absence of fighting, an absence of war. There's no war going on, so there must be peace. The Bible's idea of peace is so much more than an absence of fighting. You ever heard of the Pax Romana? Raise your hand if you heard of Pax Romana. Raise your hand. That is what? The Roman peace. In the day and age that Jesus lived, the Romans had conquered Europe. They had conquered what we call Turkey. That was Asia Minor, the Middle East, Northern Africa, and some places beyond. There wasn't a lot of fighting. There wasn't a lot of battle going on. 
I'm going to tell you why. You may be thinking, well, the, the Romans had this thing called Roman peace, and so they brought peace to the world. No, listen to me. It was a fake, forced peace that was maintained by the iron fist of the Roman legions led by their centurions. This doesn't mean that people they had conquered were, were joyously subject to the Roman Empire. What this means is that many of the people they had conquered had great animosity and hostility toward Rome, but they knew better than to try to revolt against them or to rebel. You just don't make war because you'll get crushed. They have far too many resources. They move way too quickly. They're too well-trained. They will crush you. The Jews of Christ's day, they're looking for a Messiah to throw the yoke of Rome off. Go defeat Rome. We're looking for a great leader. There was no real peace just because there was a lack of war. In my lifetime, I was part of this. Some of you were enduring all of it. If you live from 1945 to 1991, you know that there was really never an open conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. But not having open conflict does not mean that we were at peace with them. We were anything but at peace with the Soviet Union. Let's just admit it. We wanted to see them destroyed, and they wanted to see us destroyed. We want to see them fail, and they want to see us fail. And that remnant still exists today as they meddle in our elections and do the things that they're doing. And we're doing stuff over there. Believe me, it goes both ways. I'm for the United States, right? But there was this cold war. There was no war. We're not fighting. No, there's, there's fighting. There's animosity. There's hostility that is brewing the whole time. What Christ is offering people and what Christ is talking about is so much more than a lack of fighting. William Barclay writes the following. He says in Hebrew, which is the context here, peace, get, get it, Come thou, precious prince of peace, come thou fount of all blessing. Watch. We think peace, absence of fighting. We think of the negative. Something's not going on. So much more. Barclay writes in Hebrew, peace always means everything which makes for a man's highest good. I remember my pastor teaching us over and over, our little church, he would teach our congregation. It stuck. So I didn't really have to study this out because I knew that he had. Shalom, the Jewish expression of peace. In the Middle East, if they come up and they really mean it, it's not deceptive like Judas. They really like you. They may give you a kiss on the cheek, a dude to another dude. That's what they did. Shalom, kiss. If they really like you, they may give you a kiss on that cheek and a kiss on that cheek. I mean, wow, this guy really wants some shalom to this person. And if they really, really like you, they give you a kiss on this cheek and a kiss on this cheek and a kiss in the mouth. And you're like, what in the world? Their culture meant, I want, watch, all good for you. All good. Right, absence of fighting. No, 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 no. Absence of fighting is like the least of it. I want all good. This person is so emotional, so involved. Their true heart's desire is... I want, I want you to be spiritually good. I want you to be emotionally good. I want you to be relationally good. I want you to be physically good. I want it to be well with you financially in every way. I want good to you. That's the idea of the true peace. Seeks the greatest good for its objects in every area of life. Above all things. What does it mean? Yes, it's an absence of fighting. Much, much more. Second thought this morning. Christ makes peace possible. I could even have said only Christ makes peace possible. Would you hold your spot in Matthew 5? Go over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians. We'll end up in Ephesians twice today. Ephesians chapter 1. Christ makes peace possible. Now look at verse number 1, Ephesians chapter 2. I, I may have said that incorrectly. Ephesians chapter 2. Oops, you see it on the screen. <clears throat> All right, verse number 1. And, so he's writing to believers in Ephesus. So we could say this 
applies to us. The same truth applies to us. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Christians that have been taught this before, help me out. The word dead means, what word starts with the letter S? Death, death equals separation. So Paul is telling believers, so let's learn this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's spiritual death, separation from God, but the body is alive, the body is walking, the soul is awake and aware. There is spiritual death. Verse 1 again. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, this world system, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a name that is given to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all, Paul says, we, to these believers, him, them, all human beings, among whom we all once lived in the passions, the desires, the wrong desires, of our flesh. Caring about the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out, I misread that, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. What's Paul describing? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. We could say there's God there, and there's this huge gulf between us and God. Here's the problem. We are not moving toward the Lord. We're walking in the trespasses and sins, following the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's not leading us to God. we're, We're separated from God and going further and further and further away from God. That's what's being described. And then he says, you were by your very nature children of wrath. With that in mind, if you're taking notes, you may want to begin this thought. We are all, so track this. We are all born enemies of God. Now, I know by saying that, there's probably someone sitting here. By the way, there is someone sitting here this morning that is an enemy of God to this day. So, Jeff, who is it? I don't know, but I promise you, in a crowd this size, there are unbelievers. And I came to tell you what the Bible is teaching is that you are an enemy of God. But the person does not often see themselves as an enemy of God. And by the way, this conflict between all people and God that we're brought into this world being a part of, that is what that conflict is what fuels and fires all of our other conflicts. All of the other conflicts come out of this conflict. I know some people think, boy, these poor little innocent children, they're brought into a world of conflict. If they could just be brought into a world that had no conflict, then they wouldn't have problems. I'm telling you, some of their conflict is a result of the environment. But if you brought them into a perfect environment with the natures that we're all born with, trust me, they will bring conflict to the arena. We all bring conflict to the human arena because we are born in conflict with God. And someone sitting here this morning, you're thinking, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not an enemy of God. MacArthur sheds light on this. I actually used this quote back when we were in Romans 5. MacArthur writes the following quote, follow. Most unsaved people do not think of themselves as enemies of God. Because, here's why, they have no conscious feelings of hatred for him and do not actively oppose his work or contradict his word. They consider themselves at worst to be neutral about God. But then he concludes by saying no such neutrality is possible. So I want to touch that again. Most unsaved people, perhaps someone sitting here this morning, Do not think of themselves, I'm not an enemy of God, I'm neutral. Why do they think that? Because they have no conscious feelings of hatred for Him. Now let's admit right there, some people have conscious feelings. I hate God. They literally think it, they will say it. There are some, not most. Secondly, he says, also because they have no conscious feelings of hatred and they do not actively oppose 
God's work or contradict His Word. You and I know that in America and around the world, there are people who actively oppose God's work and contradict His Word. They may do it in conversations and texts and in, in chat rooms and platforms and classrooms and debates, and they literally set themselves up as the enemy of God, and their attitude is, if there's a God, yes, I'm His enemy, but the average person that is on their way to hell today does not look at themselves as an enemy of God. No, I'm not an enemy of God. I have no idea. I'm not doing any of those things. Why would He have any problem with me? I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons why God has a problem with all mankind as we're born. Number one, we all sinned in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. Romans 5 says, As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Why? Because all sinned. Wait, we haven't sinned yet. No, you and I were in Adam. Yes, he represented mankind, but you and I were in Adam seminally in his loins. When he sinned, you and I sinned. That is why the second thing is also true. Not only did we sin in Adam, believe me, you should know this to be true. We have a sin nature that loves what God hates. It's that simple. And so when we think, well, I don't, I don't know why God has a problem with me. Here's why. We have a nature that loves what God hates. We love sin. We will migrate towards sin unless the Lord pulls us towards righteousness. Left to ourselves, we always choose sin. We love it. You say, well, I still don't see the big deal, so I love what he hates. Watch. If you apply this to our country... If your texts, emails, internet usage, phone conversations, and actions start revealing that you love Al-Qaeda or ISIS, it becomes very apparent. I don't know how, but I'll promise you this. It will not take long for our country to discover you, and you will be put on their radar, and you will be seen as an enemy of the United States of America. You may say, but I'm a citizen. You let your activity start showing that you're favorable toward them. They... Our country will say, you are disfavorable toward us because we hate that. And if you love that, then you hate us. So we understand that with a country, but we don't want to apply it with God. Thirdly, the most obvious, we've all trampled God's laws with deliberate acts of disobedience. Once again, you break all the laws of the United States as we break the laws of God. There is no difference. The, the government will say, you are an enemy of the United States. You're an enemy of the state. We have to treat you that way. The only difference in this battle, this conflict, is that God is much more powerful. And God is all-knowing. It's our nature. It's our activity in Adam. It's our activity once we're born in this world. But Christ makes peace possible. Hang with me. Enter the hero of the ages. Jesus. So there's this conflict between God and man, and boy, we're losing. God is holy, and we're sinful. God is just. He has to punish sin. Mankind's headed for hell. God doesn't want to do it, but God in his justice has to do it, or he is not a just God. And there's this battle, and in comes Christ. And you say, what was the result when Christ came? I want to tell you what didn't happen immediately. That Christ did not take, Father, can I have your, Father, come work with me. He didn't take the arm of God and the hand, mankind, come on, give me, now look, let's see, this is nice. Can we get along? It's just all there. He did not do that. We did not immediately hold hands. Within three years after Jesus says who he is and why he came, mankind, us, we killed him, literally hung him on a tree. Think of that. Hung him, nailed him to a tree. Off the ground. Gravity pulling on his body. Literally rejected by mankind. Rejected by the earth. Hated by us. Crucified and killed. On God's side, that's what we did when Christ came to be a peacemaker. On God's side, God is the one who initiated. He wants to forgive. And he is willing to forgive. Catch this. He has to have a basis to forgive. He can't just say, hey, you know what? I really hate what y'all did. I'm going to give you a big old do-over. I forgive you all. And that's how a lot of people think it's going to happen. And God will not do it that way. There has to be a basis for forgiveness. And so God, who set the whole plan in motion, who ordained it, carried it out to the end, sent his son, mankind rejected, hated, 
killed him. God the Father took all of our sin. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to hear this. He took all of your sin and put it on Christ. And God the Father just poured out his wrath, the divine wrath of the ages, on his son. And the good news, which we preached back on Easter as the best news ever, is that faith in Jesus Christ brings immediate peace with God. God made a law. I put your sins on Christ. If you'll trust Him, then we will be brought at peace. If you do not trust Him, I will punish your sin through eternity in a lake of fire. You will pay for your sin or you will accept my son's payment for your sin. There is no other way. All sin has to be paid for. If you're taking notes, write the following. The moment we trust Christ, two wonderful things, many more, but at least two great things happen. Two things. We are no longer God's enemy that he must punish. But secondly, that's the negative side. I don't have to go to hell, praise the Lord. That's a wonderful part of what Christ did. The moment I trust him and his death on the cross, I am no longer an enemy that he has to punish. But secondly, the positive side, I actually become an adopted child of God that he promises all good to. He promises to bless this person. And when God promises all good, thinking of Brother Quincy, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know whether it's a few days or a few years, because of his faith in Christ at around age 40, it ends up all good because God's reputation is at stake in the life of Quincy Waters and in my life as well. What about you? Test yourself. Ask yourself. When you put your faith in Jesus, we'll make a distinction. Watch. We have peace with God. That is not necessarily that tranquil feeling of peace that may come and may go. I love the peace of God. I love the peace from God. But those, according to Philippians chapter 4, result in a Christian having right thinking and right praying. They have the peace from God and the peace of God. But what we're talking about here, go with me if you would. I think I skipped a passage. Go to Romans chapter 5. Let me read the text very quickly. I know I skipped a passage. I hit to a note and skipped the, the verses. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, and then we'll look down at verse number 10. Peace with God is different than the peace of God. Look at chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, I can't go back and teach chapter 4, but it's all about how you are saved by faith. It's all you can do on your end. God makes a promise. You put your faith in the promise of God, which leads you to the person of Jesus. Those are connected. The promises of God are all found in Jesus. So his promises are about Christ. You believe God and you believe his son. The work that he did was sufficient. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means declared righteous by the judge whose verdict matters, the only one whose verdict matters. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's all we could do. Literally, what do I have to do, God? Just believe do you believe my son's death on the cross is enough? Will you confess your sins and receive my salvation? Trust me, don't doubt. Don't keep asking me to do this over and over. You do it, you trust me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, have been, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through Christ. Verse number 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, which means brought to peace and harmony. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If he was willing to die for me when I was his enemy, how much more will he do for me now that I am a child of God and Christ is alive and it's going to be great. Not only do you not have the negative, but you get the positive aspects of heaven. Peace with God, guys, is not a feeling, hear me. It is a fact that is based on the declaration of God. You say, I feel saved. I don't feel saved. Me too. Join the club. I got saved when I was nine. I settled my assurance when I was 12, when I started understanding God can't lie. You know what? I'm not going to doubt anymore. Somebody sitting here today, you doubt all the time. Peace with God is a one-time event. Peace from God, peace of God is proper praying, proper thinking. It's wonderful. Do you have the event that is based and staked on God's 
veracity, God's promise. If you, if, here's, here's the only if, are you trusting his son? If you've done that, it is settled. Number three. Peacemakers seek to maintain unity. If you would join me in Ephesians 4, and I realize there's some folks here that have taught Scripture before, right? And those that have taught on peace and maybe peacemaking, maybe right now your mind is very accurately thinking this thought. As we head to Ephesians 4, you think, I know what Ephesians 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. I know what that's about. Jeff is about to chase a rabbit that is not actually part of the text. This is not the meaning. Jeff's getting ready to talk about peacekeeping, and the text that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5 is about peacemaking. You're right. I'm going to chase a rabbit. I'm going to chase it real quick. But I think there's a connection, and I'll be brief. Because this is, interpretively, not the same thing. So why would I look at it? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to propose to you, peacemakers, Jeff, that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Peacemakers seek to maintain unity. Verse 1, Paul says to the Ephesians, I therefore a prisoner, he's in jail, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Christians, hear this as talking to you. If you're Christian, is this me? I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, means to live your life, in a manner worthy, which means fitting, equal to. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Christians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been, that fits, that matches. If that's your calling, if you say, that's my calling, then live like it. What would that look like? Christians, here we go. Verse 2. With all humility. Humility does not necessarily mean that we go around thinking horrible, terrible things about ourselves. Humility actually means you don't think about yourself. That's real humility. You just don't think about yourself much. You don't bring that into the equation. You're not that important. You realize that you're not that important. Others are more important. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. It's our idea of meekness. It means submitting your agenda, your will, your mission to Christ's mission and to the needs of others. So Christian, measure ourselves. Verse 2. With all humility and, meek and gentleness... With patience. Patience is not sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting on something to happen. Patience means endurance. It means long-suffering. It means long-suffering difficult people. Long-suffering and patient endurance with very difficult situations. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Here it comes. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with. Putting up with it. You know what? I can let that slide. I'm not going to make a big issue of that as much as possible. As far as I can live peaceably with all people, I'm going to do that. Romans chapter 12. Now look at verse 3. What is this manner of walking worthy to the calling? Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Paul gives 4, 5, and 6. Watch. There is, what is this unity that we're supposed to be eager, not just willing we're not creating unity, Christians. We don't go into a situation, hey, we need to create some unity among our church. No, we have unity. We need to be eager, not just willing, but eager to maintain it. And it's going to take some sacrifice like verse 2 calls for. Verse 4, what is this unity? There is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Did you catch that? One Lord. One faith. That doesn't mean just one kind of faith that it takes to become a Christian. It means one body of truth. One body of faith that we adhere to. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. You say, yeah, water baptism. Water baptism is a picture of the one true spiritual Holy Spirit baptism. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jeff, what's your point? When someone, let's say a peacemaker, 100% of Christians are supposed to be peacemakers. When someone has peace, all good, yes, in absence of fighting, but all good as the goal, then when they find godly 
spiritual unity. When they find it and where they find it, then they're going to be eager to maintain that unity. Notice, godly unity. A Christian does not go into a situation where, hey, i got a bunch of people here and they all believe false doctrine and I don't want to stir things up. Wrong. We're willing to disrupt the peace because it's a false peace. It's an inaccurate peace. But when we find unity in the bond of, of peace in the Spirit, then we want to seek to maintain it. But I got hurt. I got offended. Can you keep the peace? Can you maintain the peace? Now, for the next moment, I'm going to talk out of two sides of my mouth by admission. Here we go. All right? Hang with me. Guys, there are some primary doctrines. If someone does not hold to these primary core fundamental doctrines, I can't go very far down the road with them. I just can't. We're not linked together. We don't have unity. And if someone were to come in here, whether it be me or someone else, whether it be up here or out in our classes, and they start teaching false doctrine on primary, fundamental, core things, then as an elder, one of six elders here, and of our deacons, and our teachers around here, and any discerning Christian, it is the job of an elder to be protecting the flock. And one of the main things we're looking for are wrong teachings and wrong doctrine. And so we want to be aware that we would confront that. In fact, the book of Galatians is exactly that. Paul tells a group of false teachers he wishes they would just go on to hell because they're headed there anyway and they're going to take a lot of people with them. It would be better to go ahead and get a head start. You're going to spend eternity in hell. Get a head start for a few years. Go ahead and go now. And we hear that like, that's terrible. Paul should keep the peace. No, there was no peace. That was false teaching. This book of 2 John, there was this elderly lady, a good godly lady, had a house church. Unfortunately, they were letting some false teachers come by and teach. And so John writes and says, don't let them teach and don't give them a place to stay. Don't give them a platform and don't even bid them farewell and say, hey, Godspeed, have a good day. Hey, we can't let you preach, but hope it goes well. No, I hope it goes horrible. I hope you need to change what you believe. And if you don't, I hope you break down and you don't make it to your next stop. Don't bid them Godspeed. Don't shake their hand. Don't give them a little meal money either. No, they're the enemy. So there's that. Jeff, I thought your point was that those who love peace seek to maintain unity. Right. Here's the problem. We know them. Don't be them. What? Some Christians just love to very quickly identify and magnify differences. Where where are you from? They don't ask people about, hey, how's your relationship with the Lord? Hey, what are your thoughts about the Lord? How's things between you and God? Oh, what kind of church do you go to? Where do you go to church? So they can immediately start making some distinctions and put some distance. What's your denomination? Way too quick. Way too quick. Why? Now, there are some primary things we will split over, but there are some secondary and tertiary things that we're just not going to split over. And I know some of you are thinking, Jeff, you used that word before back when Romans 14. What is this whole tertiary? It just means third level. Watch. There are some things that we may be like, you know what? We have different tastes and opinions on that. And it usually has to do with external standards. And you believe that and I believe this. And you live that and I'll live this. And whenever we can teach it and preach it from the scripture, let's do that. And until then, you know what? You may win me over with your life. And I may win you over with my life. But we may have a little different taste. That's okay. Secondary, I was talking with someone about this just Thursday on a secondary level of doctrine. Someone, there's some things that are more than tertiary. They're actually in the Word of God, but they're not clear enough that I personally would die for those things. I was talking with someone in my office on Thursday about a particular doctrine, a a, a field, a, um, a, a genre of doctrine. And I have my beliefs and they have theirs. And I'm going to tell you, I will not die for this doctrine that I think I have figured out. I won't die for that because I could be wrong. But we're going to probably go to different churches. You say, well, are there some doctrines you would die for? Absolutely. Come on, Jeff. You wouldn't die for some doctrines. It ain't like you're going to like put your life at stake on some doctrines. 
I am putting my life, my eternity is at stake on that this is the word of God, that it is true, that Jesus is the son of God who is God in the flesh who died on the cross. His death is enough to pay for all my sins. The only way to heaven is by grace of God through faith in Christ alone. I'm putting my life on the line. I believe certain things. You don't believe in that, we're not going very far down the road. Some of these other things, guess what? Man, we can debate. We're going to end up cordial and friendly, way too quick to make differences. Write this down. Paul challenges Christians, remember what you have in common. I've been in independent Baptist churches and southern Baptist churches, and people want to make distinctions. And they want to make distinctions. Big, build, start building walls. How quickly can we build walls between us and Presbyterian brothers and Methodist brothers and Charismatic brothers? And like, what are you doing? Yes, we disagree and we may go to different churches because we have differences on secondary things. Do you believe those core fundamentals that I just gave a while ago and those come out of your mouth without me feeding you the answers and they start saying that and their life is evident by a walk with God? That's my brother in Christ. Well, what do we have in common? Paul says, get it. I'll not reread, but I'll give the highlights. Hear this. We're all baptized with the same into the same body. Same body. That means they hurt, we hurt. That means they joy, they celebrate. We celebrate with them. They're possessed of the same Holy Spirit. Headed to the same future kingdom. Share the same Lord Jesus Christ. Hold to the same core beliefs about God. Hold to the same core beliefs about His Word. The same core beliefs about His salvation. Here's my point. You may say, oh, I have so much in common with the unbeliever that's at work or at school. True. You may share the same tastes in movies and music and hobbies and clothes, and go to the same school, or work at the same job, with the same career, that's fine. Christians, by the way, all Christians around the world have community and commonality and unity in the things that matter the most, the things that will matter a hundred years from now. We are one, and we're not going to fight over all of that. You have your beliefs, and I'll have mine, and we'll teach those. And we may go to different churches, and we'll shake hands over a very short fence. Number four, this one is extremely important. How many Christians are supposed to be peacemakers? Again, what percentage? Number four, requirements of peacemaking. Well, I hope you'll track with me on this, requirements of peacemaking. If it wasn't obvious a while ago, I'll say it more plainly. You with me? Peacemaking is very different than peacekeeping. Ephesians 4 was about peacekeeping. Now we're going to turn our attention back to what Jesus is talking about peacemaking. So, Jeff, how are they different? Here's the difference peacemaking is different from peacekeeping in that conflict has already erupted. Conflict. Has erupted. Peacekeeping could be a disposition. I don't want to stir things up. And some people may have more of a disposition toward that than others. And they may be more mature in Christ. And typically younger Christians are quick to stir up trouble. More mature, maybe a disposition. Watch this. Peacemaking is not so much a disposition. Peacemaking is an action. It's doing something. It's an action. Peacekeeping, well, I just want to keep things, I don't want to stir up trouble. I don't want to make a big fight. Wonderful, that's great. Peacekeeping is there's conflict that is either has erupted or it is boiling and this person is willing to be a peacemaker. Continue your note. To make peace is to place oneself between two warring parties in hopes of bringing them together. And because they're putting themselves between two people who are fighting and warring and they are at odds and there's a conflict, two great qualities need to be with the peacemaker. And here's why I proposed to you, and you kind of joked earlier, yeah, 5% are peacemakers. Here's why. It requires courage. And it requires discernment. Peacemaking is very different than peacekeeping. Peacemaking, because you're putting yourself where the conflict has already started, 
it will require courage and discernment. Let me just be real blunt here, okay? And I'm going to talk most of you out of ever doing it. In fact, really my words are not talking you out of it. You already inherently know that it is risky. And that's why if you're not a peacemaker, this will ring true. And you're like, yep, that's the reason I don't. Peacemaking, putting yourself between people that are at odds and are at warring and they're at conflict, it's dangerous. It's very, very risky. Very, very risky. The peacemaker puts themselves at risk of being misunderstood. They put themselves, they're going to throw themselves in a situation trying to bring the two together. They're misunderstood. They're disliked. They might end up being blamed. They might end up being accused. They may end up being hated. They may end up being injured. They might even end up being killed. And you're like, Jeff, come on, really? You're taking a little bit far. It cost Christ his life. Come back next week as we look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. What is it in these things that really brings out persecution in these first seven Beatitudes? I think it's number seven particularly. It's risky. So guys, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. The easiest thing to do is to know of a conflict. Watch. Watch my hands. Conflict. You know it. Or God and this person. We know the conflict is taking. Here's the easiest thing. Sit on the sideline. Feeling sorry for those in the conflict and wishing somebody would help. Boy, I feel sorry. I hope somebody will help them. That's what most of us do. In fact, some will be convicted when I say this. Many, many Christians have thought this or even worded it verbally. Something along these lines. Boy, I wish someone would witness to my family member. I wish someone would tell my friend. I've got a loved one. I wish someone would tell them about Jesus. And they live in the same state. They live in the same city, same county, and they go through life and they make it a prayer request. Pray that somebody will tell my family member about Jesus. But they don't. You know why? I don't want the risk. They might not like me. They could cut me off. They may misunderstand. They might blame me. It could get really uncomfortable. Pray. So here's what they do. They cast it off on somebody over here that's overloaded because they're known as a peacemaker. Let's get him or her to do it. Let them go be the peacemaker. Hey, you mind stepping in the life of my loved one? I would do it, but I don't want the risk. I'd rather have some temporary fake peace that I'm going to lose for eternity because I don't want to take the risk of losing my loved one for eternity. What is our thinking? We are really whacked out. So you go do it. You go to, and this person over here is just like, Bora, okay, I'll try to, I'm doing this, I've got to, okay. You're the professional. Go make peace with my loved one. Well, I know I'm coming off mean again. Here Jeff goes. What percentage of Christians are supposed to be peacemakers? It's risky. I'll tell you another reason. Why don't we do it? It takes a lot of time. A lot of time, a lot of energy. You want to write it down. Peacemaking is more a process than an event. Rarely, if only, don't you wish? All right, let's get together. Who's this is over here? All right, what's going on? What's going on? Hey, this. All right, let's pray. There, good. Check that one off. All good has come to that situation. If it was that easy, everybody would do it. But it gets dirty and long, and you know what we do? I'm not doing it. I wish somebody would help them. I've only been in church 35 years and heard 8,000 sermons. I just don't know what to tell them. Here's the risk. Let's just be honest. Your peace may not be received. They might reject it. The warring parties may turn on you. How many times has this happened? I don't have a number. I, I, I know it has happened. 911, you better get over here. He's going to kill her. They're at it again. Hurry. Woo, woo, woo. And they go in and they get him off and they throw him in the floor and they're trying to wrestle him around and they just want to get some peace and stop the fighting so they can figure out what's going on and they're about to put the cuffs and lo and behold she starts hitting them with a frying pan. This literally happens. Here comes an umbrella or a can or, or, or a, or a lampstand. 
He can beat me, but you can't rest him. Like, what is going on? Man, we're just trying to help. You know what's easier? Sit on the sideline. Boy, I hope somebody will help them. Boy, I hate that's going on. I wish somebody would witness to my loved one. I don't want to get in it. Why is this all happening? Let's come down the home stretch. We need courage. And I gave this other word. We need discernment. Here it comes. Conflict exists because sin exists. It's as simple as we can say it. Conflict exists because sin exists. Since that's true, that leads us to the next thought. We can't have peace until we deal with sin. Got to deal with sin. Peacemakers who have courage and discernment do not ignore sin and they don't pacify sin and they don't protect sin. Here's a second definition. Got two or three in a row here. Peacemaking is the practice of helping people deal with sin so that it can be repented of. That's peacemaking. You can have a brilliant doctor who knows what's going on. Oh, I know exactly what's going on. Well, tell them. I don't want to tell them. That's bad news, man. That'll make them cry. I don't want to tell them that. They know what's going on. They know the steps in the course of action. But they don't want... You say, that's not a good doctor. Guys, do you know that churches are full of people who know full well what needs to be done in a situation, but they don't want to put themselves into it? And I don't want to... Sometimes it's a friend that tells another friend, Hey, girl. You're the one at fault. What? I know everybody's telling you otherwise. You're the one. Hey, hey. Hey, buddy, it's you, or it's me, and we don't like that. I don't like it. We don't like going in and telling an unbeliever, I need to talk to you about sin and hell. You're like, I I won't talk to people about anything except their sin and hell. I don't want to talk about that. Right. Requirements of peacemaking. And that leads to our last thought today. Christ calls us to be ministers of reconciliation. Would you finish with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ calls us, that's his people, to be ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you turn over there very quickly? I'm jumping in the middle of a text. I'm not going to give the context. I'm going to fight the urge. Hopefully you still get the... You go back and read it and see if we're treating it accurately, okay? Here we go. This is, this is where we need to finish. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. All this is from God. Paul's like, yep, they don't think much of me because of the way I look, but I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Everybody that's a Christian is a new creature. Don't go by these externals. All this... Is from God. God, hang with me, look at your text, do it slow. All this is from God, who through Christ, so God's doing it, through Christ, God, who through Christ reconciled us, brought us to peace, brought us to harmony. Who's doing this? God, who through Christ, reconciled us to himself. That's number one. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us, and then he says, guess what? Now that you're reconciled, you now have the ministry of reconciliation. You are a servant. You are a minister, a servant. What am I serving? You're serving up fresh reconciliation. In case we missed it in 18, he repeats it slightly different, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, that were his enemies, to himself. What's this reconciling again? What does that mean? Here's a description. Not counting their trespasses against them. What was he doing with them? He put it on Christ, as we'll see in verse number 21. So verse 19 again. In Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And here it is, number two again, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Well, God, don't give it to me. There's got to be a better plan than me. God's like, no, no, no. 
Christian, if you're a Christian in here, I saved you, I reconciled you to me, and now I'm giving you the ministry and the message of reconciliation. So therefore, he concludes, verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We literally are citizens of heaven, living as secondarily citizens of the United States, who have been given the right and the authority and the commission to go do business on behalf of Christ and eternal kingdom of God in this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you're sitting here today and say, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for 20 years, I know I really have been. I've been growing in my holiness and I hunger and thirst for righteousness and I forgive people that sin against me and I have a pure heart that wages war against sin and I really want to love Christ and, and, and I want to please the Lord. Great, you are on your way to peacemaking because if you're sitting there saying, I am sitting here this morning, I have never led one person to Christ, we have a huge problem. The Beatitudes are not just suggestions, they are Christ's command. It is a call for all of his people. Verse number 20 in the middle. God making his appeal. Who's doing this? God making his appeal through us. On the cross, God is reconciling through Christ. But the message is to the world. God making his, it's God making the appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. In my Bible, I put quotes around the last four words of verse number 20. Be reconciled to God. That's my message to an unbeliever here today. Be reconciled to God. Christ has done it all. You say, you're not one to be able to tell me. I have the authority. I'm a true Christian. I can tell you what I did to become a Christian. I trusted Jesus and Him only. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I did that. Have you? Yeah, but what else? Nothing else. You have to hear the promise of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. I did that when I was nine years old. All that come to me, I will not cast out, Christ says in John chapter 6. Have you ever been reconciled to the Lord? Verse number 20 it ends with our job. Be reconciled. Would you please be reconciled to Christ? How's it all happen? Verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Write this down. The purpose of the Christian life is revealed in all seven Beatitudes. All seven. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your sin. Be meek toward other people. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. But guys, those first four really need to fuel the next three. Be merciful. The most merciful thing you can do is to have a pure heart. God, apparently, you left me here, to, yes, to grow in my holiness, but I'm to glorify you by actually having the courage and discernment to step into people's lives as a peacemaker. Your last note. By the way, if we're not doing that, then God might as well take us on to heaven. We'll be holier there. Following Christ means to mercifully and courageously step into people's lives. It's hard. It's risky. Dare to turn the conversations. I don't know what to say. Come on, Christian. A little bit of reading, a little bit of study, a little bit of intentionality. You can find what to say. It means to mercifully and courageously step into people's lives, turning conversations toward salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Those people are the sons of God. Would you bow your heads? As we bow our heads, close our eyes just for a moment. I didn't ask this earlier. But when I do, if you'll take five seconds, a name will come to mind. Here's the question. Who has wronged you? Put a name to it. I had names come to my mind. Who has wronged you? Anybody ever wronged you? Oh, yeah. How is it with, between you and them as far as you are? Are you as much as lies within you at peace with them? A second question is like the first with also an equally obvious answer. If you will be honest, who have you wronged? You say, well, Jeff, I, I've got a lot of people wronging me. I don't know that I've ever wronged anyone. Yes, you have. Who have you wronged? 
Christ would have us to be at peace. So Lord, putting a person on your heart. They've wronged you and you've not made peace. You've wronged them and we've not made peace. My other two questions come straight from the message. Who is a person? Like, let's leave here with some action. God, I want to be a peacemaker. And so who is a person that I know of that is in conflict with another person? This is person to person. And Lord, you're going to lay them on my heart and you actually want me with courage and discernment and gently using your word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I am supposed to step into their life and by grace be a peacemaker, not stirring up and creating trouble, but trying to bring peace, real peace and harmony. And it's going to be a process. But God, I need some courage. Maybe somebody in here right now, you're thinking, oh, this is so easy. I'm supposed to have been doing this all along. I've been prompted to do it, but I've been fighting it. I don't want the risk. And then lastly, who's a person whose entire life is in conflict with God? They're an unbeliever. Whether they know it or not, their whole life is in conflict. They are an enemy of God by nature, by their sin in Adam, and by their actions of disobedience. And they are in line to receive judgment. And they will receive judgment unless somebody has the courage and the discernment to step in their life as a minister of reconciliation. If the Lord puts a person on your heart, then ask God to give you that courage and discernment. We're called to it. This is the expected progression. And sinners, if you are here today, I'm about to pray. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. You can tell me after the service if you do that, but I'm going to invite you. You can be reconciled to God and have peace with God. It's not about a feeling. It's about you believing the promise. He made Christ to be sin for you so that Christ would have your sins put on him and God the Father judged Christ bearing your sins on the cross so that you won't have to bear them through eternity in hell you will go to hell unless you receive Christ you say well what if I don't receive or reject to not listen to not receive him by faith is to reject him the only way to heaven is to positively put your faith and trust in Christ by the promises of God. I implore you on behalf of God this morning, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You say, what do I need to do? Right where you see it, right now, you talk to God and say, God, I am a sinner. My nature loves sin. The evidence is all around. And God, I am sorry. God, I'm sorry for what I've been, who I am, what I've done. But God, I believe you. You sent your son. You said if I believe him, I'll have everlasting life. God, I don't understand it all, but I received Christ's death on my behalf. I, I, I hear you. You're honest. You can't lie. I take it right now. God, I ask you. Would you please save me from my sins? I receive your salvation. Father, would you do that in the life of someone here this morning? I prayed that earlier this week, yesterday, today. I pray it now. God, save somebody right here. Maybe viewing online, I don't know. God, save souls. You've got the power. Lord, I'm very imperfect. Not a great message from me. Not a great messenger. Very flawed. But your gospel is pure and it's powerful. And Lord, I pray that you would honor it and use it in the hands of the Holy Spirit to bring faith to lost people. Let's stand. Come thou found.